0: I invite you to find Luke chapter 7 in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the the words will be on the screen up front. Luke chapter 7. If you're just popping in to join us, um, we're journeying through the gospel of Luke. We've made our way to chapter 7 and um, gotten a handle on chapter 7 by recognizing that That in this chapter, Jesus encounters four people, and we're watching him encounter these people. Some of the people he actually encounters himself, others he encounters through intermediaries. That was the case with the the centurion that we uh, met first, and that's the case today in this encounter with John the Baptist through intermediaries. What we're doing is we're watching Jesus respond to the people that he meets. Because the people that he encounters are are real people, just like us, that have real needs and real concerns. And what we're hoping to do is learn from Jesus' encounter with them. And we've already seen him encounter an outsider, that was the centurion. Last Sunday, we watched as he encountered someone who was grieving. And we asked the question in those two weeks, who is Jesus to the outsider? And who is Jesus to the one who is grieving? And today, in this third encounter, we're asking the question, who is Jesus to the one who is questioning? Who will Jesus be to the one who is questioning who Jesus is? How will Jesus respond to someone who's unsure if Jesus really is the one to place their trust in? And you may be be able to identify with those kinds of questions. You may be asking that very question during this season of your life. You may have lots of questions about Jesus. And so if that's true for you, then this sermon today is especially for you because we're going to see someone asking a question about Jesus' identity and see how Jesus responds to being questioned. That is the wonderful and intriguing scene that we get to observe. And I hope that it's very helpful and very satisfying and very good for you, especially if you have questions about Jesus, okay? I'm going to invite you to just remain seated for the reading today. It's it's a bit of an extended reading, and so um, I just want to invite you to enjoy it um, in a comfortable position. And then I'll pray, and then we'll get into the text, all right? This is Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John, so that's John the Baptist, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury, are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children." Father, I pray that by the power and the means of the Holy Spirit, this would be a very helpful and very satisfying and very good few minutes that we spend looking into this, especially for those who, like John the Baptist, have a question for Jesus and are seeking to know if he is the one. Pray that you would make it so and glorify Jesus very much in the process and humble our hearts very much in the process. For we ask in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. It's really too bad. um, We're not going to be able to cover every aspect of this passage, not even close. And as I was reading through it again a few moments ago with you, I was thinking to myself, I can't believe we're not talking about that at all today. I apologize for that. It's just that we're going to take a laser focus today. And only look at this passage through the lens of who is Jesus to the one who is questioning. So we're leaving lots of things to the side, and I'm apologizing for it in advance, okay? Maybe someday we'll come back and talk about it again. You've got lots of time on your own to do your own study here, okay? But let's take it in these three steps. First of all, notice the one questioning the first thing we're going to think about is the one who's asking the question. This is verse 18. We find out, according to verse 18, it's John the Baptist who's asking the question. John, the one who is steeped in religion. John, the one who has very religious parents. John, the one who has been part of the ministry He's been a huge part of the work of God. John, the one who even bore testimony to Jesus saying, Look at him, behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the one asking the question. In other words, the one who's asking the question, in many respects, is the very last one that we'd expect to be questioning Jesus' identity. He's probably the last one we'd expect to be asking this question. And all we're going to take time to notice here is that being close to Jesus doesn't exempt you from having questions about him. Apparently. As a matter of fact, it could very well be that the closer you get to Jesus, the more questions you have for him. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're going to talk about why that can actually be a good thing and what some of those questions might be in just a moment, okay? Right here, we're just taking in the surprise that someone so close to the person and the work of Jesus would be the one questioning his identity. And we're doing that in order to give ourselves permission to ask questions of Jesus, we who are not, not as close as John was to the person and work of Jesus. If he had questions, so much more might we. So first we, we just see the one who's questioning. That's verse 18. The second thing we want to notice is the question itself. This is verses 19 and 20. We're noticing the question itself. The question is, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, the question that John asks is all the more surprising because of what we read in verse 18, the very first verse of the passage. We read there that the disciples of John reported all these things to him. What things? Well, the things that we've just been reading about in in Luke's account. Apparently they had gone to him and reported how Jesus had healed the centurion's servant from a distance and also how he had raised up from the dead this young man, the son of the widow of Nain. So they're going to John the Baptist. John had his own disciples. They're going to him and reporting all these things that have been happening. Hey, Jesus healed this man from a distance. He, did, he wasn't even with him, and, and he made him well. And, and then when we were in Nain, he raised up this man who was dead and gave him back to his mother. And when these things were reported to John, it was then that he asked the question. So that's, that's surprising, isn't it? We might have thought that hearing about all these things that Jesus was doing would have been a confirming thing for John. We might have thought that he would have received this news from his disciples And responded with kind of a nod and a smile, and maybe a, I told you so. See, I told you that Jesus was the one to place our faith in, that he was the one to come. But instead, we have this second surprise of the passage that it all leads to John having a question about Jesus' identity. Now, notice that I'm using the term questioning. And not doubting. And I'm doing that on purpose. I have heard preachers take this text and preach a sermon, preach a sermon from this text and, and use it. And on the basis of this text, say that doubting is an acceptable part of the Christian experience. I've heard preachers take this text and say, see, it's okay to live with doubt as a Christian because look at what John did. John was doubting. And if it was okay for John, it's okay for us. Okay, now what I want to do is tell you that I want to push back against that line of interpretation and that line of preaching from this text, and I'll tell you why. There's two reasons why. First of all, there's nothing in this text that says John is doubting. The word doubt is just not here. What we can say for sure from this text is that he asked a question. That's what he did. He asked a question. So let's use that what's in the scripture and just limit ourselves to that. He was questioning. He did ask a question. And so that's where I'm stopping. We can say that for sure, that John had a question for Jesus. And to use the word doubt here, in my view, to use the word doubt and say that John was doubting is to place an interpretation on John's actions that's not warranted by the passage. All right? Here's the second reason. Second reason that I'm staying away from using the word doubting here is that doubt is never commended in the scriptures. Every time that, that doubting is spoken of, it's spoken of in a negative way as something to resist and something to avoid. And there's, there's all kinds of references I could give you for that. I'll just give you two. Matthew fourteen thirty-one, James 1, 6. Doubt is everywhere presented as something to resist and not something to coddle. So what we're saying is that having questions about Jesus is acceptable and even natural. Whereas having doubts about him is not. Now, what's the difference? Because it seems like there might be a really fine line here and that maybe I'm making a distinction where there's no real difference. What's the difference between questioning and doubting? Doubting is inclined toward disbelief. Doubting implies a negative stance on the presentation of truth. On the other hand, questioning is not necessarily inclined toward disbelief. Questioning may merely seek to understand what's already believed. questioning may seek to know with greater certainty that which is already known and believed. Questioning, in other words, is not inherently negative, like doubting is. Doubting hears truth and says, I'm inclined to disbelieve that. I doubt that. Questioning, on the other hand, hears truth and says, I'd like to know more about how that can be true. I'd like to make progress in understanding what's just been presented to me. Therefore, I've got a question. Now, I'll give you an example that I hope will clear away some of the mud that's begun to Envelop this sermon, okay? As we're trying to make such a fine distinction and things are getting murky. I'll give you an example. We know that God is good. We know that his plan and his will are good. His plan and his will for history and for my life and your life is good. We know that. We know that truth from the scriptures. God is good and his will is good. Sometimes, however, we hit a point where because of what happens to us, we might wonder, how can this be good? This feels bad. Like this thing that I'm going through right now feels really bad. How can God be good? How can his plan be good? There's pain here. So, How does what I'm experiencing square with a sovereign and loving and good God? That's an example of what it looks like to have questions for God. Notice that it has not crossed over into what we would call doubt. That would happen if we were to say, this thing that happened to me felt really bad, and there is pain here, and there's still pain here. Therefore, God may very well not be good. In fact, I'm starting to doubt that he is. Or God may not be all-powerful or sovereign. In fact, it really doesn't look like he is at all. Or God may not be there at all. In fact, I'm starting to doubt that he is. I'm inclined to believe that he's not good, not sovereign, not there because of what I'm experiencing. The reason that doubt can't coexist with faith in the life of a believer is that doubt is an assault on the good character of God. Doubt takes what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures and in his son and says, I don't think so. I'm inclined to not believe that. And doubt sets up self as more truthful than God. And therefore doubt is to be resisted and avoided and replaced with faith it may be and should be replaced with a faith that seeks to understand. Faith begins from a point of belief in what God has revealed, and it presses in further through the asking of questions. But we have to begin, friends, from a foundation of believing the word of God. So, we're making an important distinction, and I'm saying that what John does is ask a question, which is different from saying, John is doubting. Now, listen, I'm not saying that John wasn't doubting. I'm saying that we can't say that he was doubting on the basis of this passage. In fact, the contextual evidence probably points to the opposite. In light of the fact that he just received the news about the healings that Jesus had done, about raising the dead, it seems more likely that he would not have been at a place of doubt with what's happening in light of what the scriptures say will happen. Everything you've just seen, match that up with what Isaiah said was going to happen. Do some wrestling. And since John can't be there in person and see it with his own eyes, like he might want to, he's forced to rely on the testimony of others. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. John's going to have to rely on them and their trustworthiness. Do those things sound familiar? Wrestle with the scriptures. Rely on the testimony of others. That's our position exactly. Nothing's changed. I hope you find comfort in knowing that nothing's changed. If you have questions for Jesus, you've got some wrestling to do with the scriptures. And you're going to have to rely on the testimony of others. The New Testament authors, what they saw and what they heard. So there is a gentleness and a patience in Jesus' response to John and to you. God does not rebuke you for your questions, Christian. He's not surprised and he's not astonished. But neither does he assert himself in some kind of prideful, offended way. Like saying, who are you to question me? He does the opposite. He steps back almost into the shadows and says, I am content to let the scriptures and others speak for me. That's amazing. He would have thought that he would have risen up with some great proof and showed John who I am, and he shrinks back into the shadows and says, I am content to let these speak for me. The scriptures and the testimony Of others, and what you may feel like is insufficient evidence, Jesus has called sufficient. He's content to let you wrestle with the scriptures and with the testimony of the eyewitnesses. He's patient and gentle with you. Now, there's something else, and this is the last thing. There's also something confrontational in his response. There's something gentle in his response to being questioned, but also something confrontational. And this is where we see Jesus model so well what it looks like to be the perfect pastor. A pastor is both shepherd and preacher. And in the first part of Jesus' response, the gentle part, we see the the shepherd part come through really clearly. Now here in the second part of his answer, the confrontational part, We see the preacher very clearly. A preacher's job is to confront people and tell them what they don't want to hear but what they must hear. And that's what happens in verses 31 through 35. Jesus closes his little seminar with the crowd with a necessary safeguard for those who are questioning him. When we go to the scriptures to wrestle with who Jesus is, when we are evaluating eyewitness testimony in the New Testament and trying to sort out who Jesus is, there's something very important that we have to remember about ourselves as we engage that process. What's the very important thing that we have to remember about ourselves? We are very poor evaluators of people. We're bad at evaluating people and coming to the correct conclusions. We're likely to get it wrong. The people of Israel had certain expectations for John the Baptist and for Jesus. But those expectations weren't met. And this is pictured by the complaint of the children in the marketplace. This is verse 32. Hey, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge. That's a, that's a funeral song. It's a song of mourning. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. We played the flute. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge. You didn't weep. See, there's a mismatch between what they expected and what actually happened. There's a mismatch between what we wanted to see from you and what you did. And the conclusion is that the fault for that mismatch lies with John. And with Jesus. John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, which were actually signs of his set apartness, his holiness. But the people drew the opposite conclusion. They said, he has a demon. This guy, this weird person, has a demon. Jesus, the Son of Man, came eating and drinking. And the people said, look at him. Look at this glutton and this drunkard and this friend of sinners and tax collectors. In other words, they labeled him as a great sinner. Gluttony, drunkenness, associating with sinners. When the opposite was actually true, Jesus was sinless. The Lord Jesus is pointing out to us here Our propensity to evaluate others in such a way that we always maintain the moral high ground. When there was a mismatch between what the people expected and what John and Jesus actually were, the people found fault with John and Jesus, not themselves. They maintained the moral high ground for themselves. It was John that had a holiness problem. And it was Jesus that had a sin problem. What's the problem with that? The problem is that they were wrong. The people were completely wrong. John didn't have a demon. Jesus was not a sinner. They were wrong about John, and they were wrong about Jesus. John and Jesus were the opposite of what their sensibilities told them that they were. They were poor evaluators of people because they did not reckon on their own self-seeking and self-justifying hearts that will always seek to judge others in such a way that they maintain the moral high ground and get to say, I'm right and you're wrong. And the job of the preacher is to point out to you that your heart is the same. You think you can open up the scriptures and make an unbiased, neutral judgment about who Jesus is, the rightness of his teaching, the truth about his nature, the reality of his resurrection, the value of his promises. And you have to understand, your heart is not neutral. It's evil. It is a self-seeking and self-justifying heart that will always seek to maintain the moral high ground. And that will put you in the position of being wrong. Completely wrong. Your read on things will be the opposite of what's true. You are like a child in the marketplace... Expecting God to dance to the tune that you call out. Expecting Him to be who you think He ought to be and conform to what you think is good. And if He doesn't, then there must be a problem with the God of the Bible. Because there can never be a problem with me. Now, that's offensive, isn't it? That's a really, really offensive thing to tell someone. And every other message that you hear is exactly the opposite. Every other message you hear from every other voice around you in the world is what is inside of you is good and right and true. Jesus is the only one who tells us the truth. That what is inside of us is evil and self-justifying and wrong. And it causes us to wrongly judge the true messengers of God who are sent for our good and for our salvation. That's what the people of this generation are like. And so as you wrestle with the scriptures and your questions about Jesus, Don't forget to take into account your own moral deficiency and God's moral superiority. Who is Jesus to the one who's questioning? Well, he's the perfect pastor. He's a gentle shepherd, and he's a cutting preacher. And we need both, and he is both. He's the one who is to come, and there is no other. Amen. Father, we have to humble ourselves in light of reading these things and just say, let God be true and let every person be a liar. We have to justify you and say, God is just. God is right. We are wrong. Thank you that we can open the Bible and see that when we have questions, like even when we're people of faith but have real, legitimate questions, that Jesus is both a, a gentle shepherd and an accurate, cutting preacher. What a wonderful safeguard as we ask questions, just to know that there's time to sort things out, but to do it in such a way that we remember that we're not neutral and our hearts are so inclined to want to believe what we want to believe and maintain this idea that we could be judged over what's right and wrong, good and evil. Thank you that Jesus is just who we need him to be. Amen.